I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are, because coming up, actor Greg Zestero will explain how he ended up co-starring in one of the worst films ever made, featuring sparkling dialogue like this. As far as I'm concerned, you can drop off the earth. That's a promise. (laughs) All right, well, this is the show that knows a little something about being so bad it's good. This is... From the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire with Elliot Smith biographer Todd Schultz, actor Greg Sestero, and music from Twin Forks. All that plus comedy from our troupe, The Modulators, and our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Welcome to Live Wire Radio, everybody. Recorded as always in front of a live crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, and we have a really fun show for you this week. We've got author William Todd Schultz stopping by. They'll be talking about the life and music of Elliot Smith. Speaking of music, uh, we've got some for you from the Folk Supergroup. That's right, I said it. Folk Supergroup. Twin Forks, they'll be playing. Plus, writer and actor Greg Sestero is going to explain what it's like to read the reviews after you've unwittingly starred in one of the worst films ever made. First, though, speaking of disasters, I actually had one this week. On the day that we record our show in Portland, I had my laptop stolen from the airport. And this is the laptop that I write all of my parts of Livewire on meaning all of a sudden I lost all of my interview questions and my jokes and my monologues. Everything I had prepared for the show was just gone, and I had to actually rewrite the entire show on the plane ride to Portland. And I had to rewrite it on my phone, which is not ideal. And, and, and even worse, I had all these family photos and pieces of audio and other stuff that I kind of can't replace on that laptop. And of course, I don't remember actually backing it up because... I'm not organized that way. So I'm hoping, though, because I don't really understand computers, that maybe the Apple company was magically somehow storing the stuff on this laptop that I lost behind my back and maybe not telling me about it because I'll I'll believe any magic when it comes to computers. 
So here's what we're going to do at the top of the show today. I'm going to actually call my buddy Jesus up. He was a genius at the Apple store for a long time. And now that's not just a compliment to him. That means he actually worked at the help desk at the end of the Apple store. So he knows like everything about these computers. And uh, my hope is that there's some way that some of this stuff is, is savable. So let's just, let's see what he says. Hey, Jesus, it's Luke. Hey, Luke, how's it going, man? It's been better. I'm going to just put it that way. I um, I had my computer stolen, and I didn't, uh, at least that I'm aware of, back anything up. See, here's the thing. I'm not really a computer-y person, but, um, but sometimes I've been amazed by the technology because, for instance, I lost my phone once, and I bought a new phone, and all of my stuff just somehow repopulated on my new phone. So... I guess I'm wondering, is there any version of that on my computer, like that secretly the ghost of Steve Jobs was was saving that for me somewhere? Not really. Uh, that stuff, if it was never backed up or never put anywhere like a Dropbox account or any kind of thing like that, they're gone. The only way, the only place that that exists is physically on that drive that's on that computer that is probably on Craigslist. You know, you're being really direct about this, which sounds kind of practiced to me. Did you have to give this kind of talk to a lot of people when you were working at the Genius Bar? It's one of those things that would be a daily occurrence. It's part of bedside manner that comes with the job. And the least liked thing is when you have to tell someone that the only thing that they care about on their computer is probably gone. And you become pretty practiced, similar to a doctor who has to give very bad news on what you say to that individual. And it's part of the training. Uh, oh, really? So they you... actually give you training for, for how to oh, break this yeah. kind of news to people? You know, like, you, you never use the word unfortunate. Um, that makes it sound like there's some sort of luck factor involved. Um, you never... Uh, you want to be empathetic, but not necessarily sympathetic. Uh, huh. You want to understand someone's plight, but if you feel too much for them, you're going to try to do things or you're going to try to give false hope where there is none. Oh, and wow. so sometimes direct and honest and clear and concise is the best way to start it off. People could lose everything that they ever had. You know, in talking to you, Jesus, I'm not getting great news about the potential for my data, but I'm feeling slightly less bad about the fact that this happened to me because I guess, as you said, this is this is part of life in 2013. It happened and... to me. It happened to me after I had already witnessed a couple of these at the bar. Are you serious? So I, lost, I was that person that convinced himself that it would never happen to him. You know, it's a, I only have the desktop at home. What's going to happen? Well, of course... Living in Washington State, we get one of those great power outages, and I lost, you know, the first six months of pictures for my son. And from that point on, never again. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. I mean, if anyone should have been backing stuff up, it's you, buddy. Oh, yeah, I knew better. I was better at teaching people and telling people how to do it than doing it myself. Well, thanks for being my shoulder to cry on today, Jesus. I appreciate it. You know, I, I only wish I had better news to tell you, but realistically... It's, it's not the best of situations. All right, upward and onward. It's time for the first day of the rest of my life here on Livewire without my beloved laptop. That's okay. 
My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Let's hear some music. How about that? That'll make me feel a little less bereft. Our musical guest has been referred to as a folk supergroup, which sounds like it might involve them smashing acoustic guitars or, you know, destroying a hotel room by just pouring kombucha everywhere. But actually, Twin Forks is called a supergroup because it's made up of members of successful bands like The Narrative, Bad Books, and Dashboard Confessional. Their self-titled EP was just released last month. Let's go back to the Alberta Rose Theater and take a listen to Twin Forks on Livewire.
That's Twin Forks here on Livewire Radio. Come on, Tim. Come on out, buddy. Go away. I'm not coming out. <laughs> it's your birthday, Tim. All your friends are here. I don't care. I want Breaking Bad. I know, but Breaking Bad is over now, okay, Tim? It, it, it was only five seasons. I know, I know. It was only on five seasons, but there's nothing you can do now. It's done. Just go away. Uh, okay, Tim, listen up. I, I called somebody to help you out, okay? And they, and they just showed up. Her name is Helen, okay, and, and she's a professional at dealing with this kind of thing. Hi, Tim. It's Helen. Can you hear me? Go away! I hate you. I hate everything. I just want Breaking Bad. Sounds worse than I thought. What'd he take? Uh, well, after the finale, he heard how amazing Breaking Bad was, so he binge-watched all five seasons in two weeks. All five seasons? I know, I know. I feel like I'm a part of this, though. I kept telling him what a great show it was. He took four shows a day on a show that was only supposed to be taken weekly. Yeah. And now he's going through withdrawal. We're going to need to get him hooked on something else faster. He's not going to make it. He's not going to make it? What, what, like, he's going to die? No. But he'll start reenacting entire episodes of Breaking Bad with hand puppets. Say my name. You're Heisenberg. You're damn right I am. Damn it! We're losing him, Tim! Oh, my God. Tim! I want you to listen to me very carefully. 1934, America, the Dust Bowl. A fugitive named Ben Hawkins finds refuge within a- That's Carnival, I've seen it. And they canceled it after only two seasons. Carnival usually works. Okay, Tim. Idris Elba is a near-genius murder detective whose brilliant mind can't always save him. Luther, I know. British shows are only like five episodes per season. You can do one season like it's nothing. Tim, feel like laughing? Robert Wool is a top sports agent who just can't seem to get his... Arliss, are you kidding me? What am I, some kind of psychopath? Damn, why did I suggest Arliss? I know better than that. God, it's all my fault. Tim, I'm sorry, buddy, I'm sorry. Dave, listen to me. Your friend Tim is coming down from a very high-potency television drama. None of these suggestions are going to work. They're too low purity. We're going to need the primo shit. Wait a minute. You're not talking about... It's the only way. Okay, fine. Just do it. Tim, you ever seen Doctor Who? Of course. Of course, but I already told you. British shows have short seasons. Did you hear nine never-before-seen episodes from 1968 were discovered in Nigeria this month? You're lying. It's the truth, Tim. Plus, enough raw footage to get a whole other season. It's uncut Colombian, I mean British sci-fi smack. Really? Really. Now... Why don't you go join your party and I'll leave a DVD with your buddy Dave here. Okay. Thanks, lady. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I said I hate you and all that. So what happens when he gets through those nine episodes? This is just enough to get him weaned off. Okay. Then he'll probably want to go back through the whole Doctor Who series again. That's 798 episodes. So it should last him the rest of the year at least. And what happens after that? A girlfriend. Cocaine. Or Game of Thrones. Whatever comes first. <laughs> Thank you.
That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Jennifer Rowe. You are listening to Live Wire Radio, the show that does not think you're the bee's knees for listening. But let's explain. You know bee's knees are actually hairy and super weird looking? Have you actually looked at them under a microscope? If anything, your supermodel Giselle Bunchen's knees. We're going to try to see if we can make that one catch on. Not sure. We're not the biggest trendsetters here at LiveWire, but we're going to start now. When we're back after a short break, we'll have William Todd Schultz here to talk about Elliot Smith and actor-turned-author Greg Sestero from the movie The Room. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. Drink up, baby. Stay up all night with the things you could do. You won't, but you might. The potential you'll be that you'll never see. The promises you'll only make. Drink up. Elliot Smith uh, might have been best known for his songs that were featured in the film Goodwill Hunting, but to the many people who adored his music, he was sort of equally well known for being a very tortured soul who eventually took his own life. Elliot Smith is the subject of William Todd Schultz's newest book, which is called Torment Saint. He's here to talk about it. Please welcome William Todd Schultz to Livewire. Todd Schultz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. God, it's great to be here. I've never been to Livewire before. It's super cool. Super cool um, event. When did you first get interested in Elliot Smith? Um, I'd say about four years ago. I, uh, my daughter, Adrian was going through this hardcore Arctic Monkeys phase. Then she went through a hardcore Shins phase. And then that was followed up by a hardcore Elliot Smith phase. And uh, I just came in on her one day listening to, I think it was Waltz Number 2, which I think is one of his masterpiece songs, and it was just like, Shazam, you know, who is this guy? And so we both started really listening to him kind of obsessively, and I just kept being blown away by just this kind of ineffable 
magnificence to the music, just consistently high-quality songs. He practically could not write a bad song. There have probably been about five times in my life where I've heard a song and I thought, that's way better than this person usually writes, and then I find out it was actually an Elliott Smith song. Yeah, right, they covered it. They covered one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Half the songs I like are Elliott Smith covers, it turns out. (laughs) Anyway, then I got to know him as a person. I looked into him more and just an incredibly humble, compassionate Extremely intelligent and also extremely funny guy, especially when he was doing well before drugs kind of destroyed him in 2000, 2001, 2003. But he was just a great, someone who's just in, incredibly lovable and easy to root for. I, th- uh, I was interested in your book to read that Elliot Smith wasn't really that into writing lyrics when he started out. Because to me, the lyrics to the songs are are what really draw me in. I mean, I will, I'll have a lyric from an Elliott Smith song running through my head yeah, sometimes me too. out of nowhere, and it'll really affect my day. But he didn't actually start off. He started off doing more of the instrumentation on things. Yeah, he was always um, really insecure about his words early on. He was in a band at Lincoln High School called Stranger Than Fiction, which he formed with a bunch of his buddies. And, you know, at that time, his really good, very dear, very, very close friend, Garrick Duckler, wrote pretty much all the lyrics to those Stranger Than Fiction songs in high school. And one thing I talk about in my book that is a bit of a revelation that a lot of people don't know is that Garrick Duckler continued, actually, to contribute lyrics to Elliot Smith's songs all the way up to figure eight in 2000. So Duckler was writing like, he estimates like two lines or so every other song, maybe sometimes four lines to Elliot Smith's songs, even as Elliot became, you know, well-known, achieved kind of medium-level fame and became, you know, did did XO and figure eight and stuff. Were so those he, songs, I mean, were the lyrics of those songs, you know, I think about a lyric, like, he has a lyric that says, with a broken sink for a face, yeah. right? Which is, I, when I and hear that... And that just takes up space. Yeah, and when I hear yeah. that, I just, my heart aches for this guy who, I mean, was he walking around with those kind of feelings almost all the time, or was that for the effect of making a good song? Uh, I think he did everything. You know, his friend Sean Krogan said something interesting in this recent Willamette Week cover article from um, Wednesday where Sean just said, you know, Elliot did everything bigger than than anyone else. He did drugs bigger than anyone else. He uh, He recorded music more intensely than anybody else. And he was just kind of better at being depressed. It's weird. It was like... <laughs> It was like uh, he had a, I feel like he almost, depression almost became a fictional character that he adopted. You know, we all like understand ourselves through narrative, like telling stories about ourselves to ourselves, about who we are. And uh, I think his story increasingly as he got older was one of being tortured and probably can't say certain words on this show. But oh, you can bleep like, them out. Okay, just being thoroughly f***ed up and... Oh, you can't say that. Uh, okay. Oh, my God. Uh, that was the one word I was hoping you weren't going to say. I thought I had carte blanche. Uh, and, uh, you know, he always expected doom. He, also, he always expected things to not work out. But, you what? know, he, um, he was, for a lot of his life, he was incredibly... Um, funny, happy, healthy, productive, creative. It wasn't really until he moved from Portland around like 96 or so to New York where he lived 
sort of, but he was on tour most of the time. So he was just like camping out, friends' apartments or whatever. Then he got to L.A., and by the time he got to L.A., he was, he was addicted to heroin because he got addicted on a European tour, went back to L.A., he was on heroin, and then things just... Drugs really, really destroyed his life, and he never could quite get out of it. Well, before all that, though, he had this moment where... And as somebody... I was a fan of Elliot Smith for a long time, and to see him at, at the Oscars going, uh, going up against Celine Dion... Yeah. For best uh, song, because his song... Yeah, he wasn't from, expecting to win, by the way. Right. Yeah, right. She did the song from Titanic, and he did the song from Good Will Hunting. And anyway, you write about this in, in your book, and, yeah. uh, and we were hoping you could, you could read that. So this is William Todd Schultz reading from Torment Saint here on Livewire. I'll fake it through the day with some help from Johnny Walker in the poison brain down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head Surreal was the word Elliot Smith used more than any other to describe his deeply improbable man-out-of-nowhere appearance at the 70th Academy Awards about which no subsequent interviewer failed to ask him to the point where the interviews themselves must have seemed just as surreal as that 1998 night. The feeling was the opposite of schadenfreude, more an instance of enjoying the success of a person never pegged to be quite so successful. Elliot stood for the overlooked, underrated, the loser plucked out and suddenly winning, and those talking with him, many of whom identified strongly took obvious delight in the anomalousness of the outsized recognition. It was slightly absurd, slightly comical, but also slightly thrilling. Surreal, like its cousin Kafka-esque, is a hackneyed trope pulled out nowadays to describe a traffic jam in L.A. or a line at the DMV. Uh, But Elliot had it right. Surrealism equals incongruous juxtaposition, which captures the night's original song category ideally. Here was Elliot Smith, looking barely adolescent, singing about faking it through the day with Johnny Walker Red, maybe the most un-Oscars-like opening line ever. And here, right beside him, was Titanic Celine Dion, her heart forever going on, (laughs) with the mawkish side of Michael Bolton thrown in for measure. The poet versus the anti-poets, the hero and the clowns. In later interviews, Elliot said he was too bewildered to get nervous, but most friends saw it differently. They describe him as scared <laughs> He stepped out to a strings intro in his white Prada suit, hair customarily disarranged, guitar slung around his back. There'd been talk of him sitting on a chair, but the Oscars people nixed the idea. It wouldn't look good, they figured. Celine Dion disarmed Elliot. Backstage, she asked if he was nervous. He said he was. She reassured him, suggesting he use the adrenaline to make the song better. It's a beautiful song, she added. Then she gave me a big hug, Elliot recalled. It was too much. She was really sweet, which has made it impossible for me to dislike her anymore. (laughs) It was too human to be dismissed. As he begins, 
Elliot's, Elliot's voice, never especially powerful, seems to tremble slightly. Everywhere friends were watching, in bars or houses on Hawthorne in Portland, literally holding their breath. Denny Swafford, the Cavity Search label co-owner, said it was like, for a moment, your favorite thing in the world was everybody else's favorite thing. Friends held Elliot's fear. They hung on each tremulous line. They rooted for him to power through, and he did. He bowed twice, once by himself, then later sandwiched between Yearwood and Dion. What the Oscars crystallized for Eliot most powerfully was the problem of ambivalence and of fame. How much to want, how much to run away from. At least with regard to material circumstance, things had changed. Now he was known, and he would be signed shortly to Behemoth Dreamworks, a far cry from the Cavity Search and Kill Rock Stars labels. There was money, too, and with it opportunities for self-destruction. Success, in other words, made drugs possible. The numbers vary, but from 2000 to 2002, Elliot would come to spend upward of $1,000 per week on illicit substances. But the most forbidding challenge was emotional. Music was one thing, by far the most natural, uncomplicated aspect of Elliot's life. It couldn't and wouldn't stop coming. The drug slowed, but never kinked the flow. Yet post-Oscars, Elliot was increasingly uncomfortable in his own skin. The accolades embarrassed him. There was guilt, too, a need to diminish his own self-importance, a feeling of, what I do is no better than anyone else. His belief, when he recognized at a very deep level, I'm, I'm certain he was right about this, was that he was the wrong kind of person to be big and famous. Fame is always a surprise. One doesn't know what it means until it arrives. Before that, it's an abstract, a possible future, nothing to contend with except intellectually. When it comes, though, it's a problem. It fits or it doesn't. It feels good or it feels bad. Elliot was always insistent that he was in it to make music for himself. If others happened to like it, that was fine, a pleasant surprise, but in some essential way unintended. Barry Manilow said this about Judy Garland. It captures Elliot's situation perfectly. Everything she did was filled with the truth. I think that's the difference between her and everybody else. Everyone else, oh yeah, they're great singers, they do ver verbal acrobatics, but they don't tell the truth. This woman always told the truth. Faking it is protection. Openness is vulnerability. It's you up there, only you. Be careful, Elliot said in a song, if you decide to be open. It's your life you're talking about. And in Elliot's case, that life held secrets. No wonder he wanted the hype to decline. He was now a somebody, but he preferred being a nobody. Mm -hmm.
things you could do You won't, but you might The potential you'll be That you'll never see The promises you'll only make Drink up with me now And forget all about The pressure of days Do what I say And I'll make you okay Drive them away Images stuck in your head The people you've been before That you don't want around anymore They push and shove They won't bend to your will I'll keep them still Drink up, baby Look at the stars I'll kiss you again Between the bars Where I'm seeing you there With your hands in the air Waiting to finally be caught Drink up one more time And I'll make you mine Keep you apart Deep in my heart Separate from the rest Where I like you the best They won't bend to your will I'll keep them still That was Suzanne Safan from the band Year Afar playing the music of Elliot Smith. We've also had William Todd Schultz here reading from his book, Torment Saint. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. This is LiveWire, sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market. October is Fair Trade Month at Whole Foods, which means, as we understand it, if you want to trade the month of October for another month, like July or something, the Whole Food employees will at least hear you out on that. Although there's an alternate meaning, which I guess is that they've got more fair trade fruits and vegetables in stock than ever. More information available at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, you're all set, Mr. Little. Room 207 is up the stairs to your left. Is there anything else I can do for you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm traveling alone, and I read that your hotel can provide all the comforts of home. Oh, yes. We have many special services to make you feel at home. Well, these business trips can feel so lonely. I really miss my family. <laughs> I understand. Uh, if you'd like to check out a dog for the weekend, we have several available. All of them have been trained to act happy when they see you walk into a room. I, I've never been much of a dog person. No problem, no problem. No. Do you have kids? Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure I want to check out a kid. <laughs> of course not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But if you want to feel like you're traveling with kids, uh, you'll want to try our wet towel service. Each morning, the maid will leave three to five sopping wet towels on the bathroom floor, as well as a random selection of toothbrushes, toys, and clothes. Oh, I mean, that sounds great. Uh, your clock radio is programmed with 32 different kinds of snoring to help you fall asleep. Okay, uh, can I set a wake-up call for 7 a.m.? Uh, no problem. And I'll send somebody in an hour or two before that to jump up and down on your bed and play with your face. Uh, are you hungry? Uh, not really. 
When you are, just dial four on your room phone. Room service will be happy to fight with you about where to go for dinner. I'll definitely try that tonight. Here's a tip. Even if he says he's fine with whatever, don't be disappointed. He secretly has some very strong opinions, and you'll just have to go through a long list of ideas before he'll actually accept one. That's perfect. And if you're especially lonely, we can provide you with a prostitute. Oh, no. Who will change into pajamas, read a book for ten minutes, and then roll over and fall asleep facing away from you. That, I mean, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll definitely take one of those. God, this is going to be a great stay. Thank you. Are you sure there's nothing else we can do for you? Well, I, I didn't mention one thing. You see, my mother lives with us. Oh, I, I, I completely understand. Uh, that shirt looks terrible, and you should be wearing a jacket. Or Why do you let your kids talk to you that way? And I can't complain about anything, because nobody cares anyway. You're the best. Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. You are listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. Our next guest was in what ultimately turned out to be a very successful film, despite being described by one reviewer as being like getting stabbed in the head and being deemed the Citizen Kane of bad movies. Tommy Wiseau's The Room has turned into a sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show-esque cult phenomenon Actor Greg Sestero played Mark, who was Wiseau's best friend in the movie, who eventually betrays him. Here's a little sample of what went on in that movie. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bull****. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? I have a problem with Lisa. She said that I hit her. (laughs) What? Well, did you? No, it's not true. Don't even ask. What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. I got a question for you. Yeah. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa's loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> What a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. I'm so happy I have you as my best friend, and I love Lisa so much. Yeah, man. Yeah, you are very lucky. Here with his book, The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, please welcome Greg Sestero. How did you... I'm sorry, I forgot. I wanted to say, oh, hi, Greg. <laughs> how, how often does that happen to you on a daily basis? It happens quite a bit. What is that about? I mean, does Tommy Wiseau speak that way in real life? Because one of the many things that's wonderful about this film is he's always greeting people by saying, oh, hi. Yeah, there has there. to be like an entrance every time somebody comes in. You have to say hi, and then you have to say bye. So, I don't know. I think he maybe lost track of the editing, you know? That was not the uh, only thing he lost track of, if yeah, you've seen the film. After hearing that scene, it's just it's mesmerizing every time. <laughs> How did you first uh, get to know Tommy Wiseau? Um, I was taking an acting class in San Francisco. Um, I was kind of down and out. I just lost out on getting this part. And on walks, you know, onto the stage is Tommy Wiseau. He looks kind of like a... You know, a comic book character, half hair metal icon, 
you know, a little vampire thrown in there. And he starts performing this Shakespearean sonnet, and it's just mesmerizing, but in, you know, the opposite way of what you'd expect. And he begins getting on with the teacher and being like, no, this is the way you do it. And they start kind of having an argument. And I was like, you know what? I, I got to do a scene with this guy. <laughs> I got to figure out who he is. So I approached him to do a scene, and um, he looked at me like I was crazy. Um, how did you end up getting roped into co-starring in the movie The Room? Well, I'd read the script, so I definitely wasn't going to be in it. <laughs> but I agreed that I would help Tommy make the movie because he needed help to get it into production. And um, the night before filming, he made this shrewd offer that I couldn't refuse. I was 24, and you know, I'd, at, th at that point, you, don't, you make decisions. You don't think you're going to be talking about them 10 years later. So Why do you think he was so obsessed with having you in the movie? Because in order to put you into the film, he had to fire the guy who he'd already given the job to in the world's most convoluted way. I think it was a movie about his life, really. It was autobiographical, and it was about friendship, and I was a big part of that. Um, I just wish the dialogue would have been a little bit better, but... Um, what did the crew make of this whole production? I think they just saw it as the train wreck that it was. I think everybody that was there was just trying to survive the film. It was almost like we were kind of rooting for it to finish. <laughs> and it barely did, but I think everyone was just kind of in dismay that, you know, here he is shooting a film on two cameras. He, he was saying he was the first one to ever shoot a film on two cameras, which now is explain, kind of... explain that, because he was shooting film and video at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, which has never been done. It's kind of like bragging and saying I'm the first an only human to stick my arm up a whale's anus. <laughs> and he, he was very proud of it. And so he shot the, he shot the entire movie that way. And um, he's still, I think, the only one to have done that. <laughs> was there a cameraman who had to hide inside of a tent so, yeah. that, they couldn't, so that Tommy couldn't see him laughing? Yeah, there was actually a, a, a giggle tent that was set up. <laughs> so... Uh, so he couldn't be seen laughing, and it would shake really hard every scene we shot. How would you rate your performance in the film? You know what? I like to say that I, I mailed in my performance, and I, I didn't even bother to lick the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of shows. It looks like I'm just painfully there. Like, I'm, my body's there, but my mind is in Hawaii or something. Yeah, for people that haven't seen the movie, the 20-second the synopsis is, this guy, Johnny, played by Tommy Wiseau, he's got a girlfriend he loves. She's cheating on him with this handsome devil right here, Greg Sestero. And then, uh, do I ruin the end of the movie? Uh, would that be, I, I that... don't think you can. <laughs> <laughs> he finds out about it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an altercation at a party. They keep going up to the roof of this apartment building for some reason, and then Johnny kills himself at the end. That's kind of what happens in the film. I noticed, though, that there was this other thing that I assume Tommy Wiseau loved as a device, which was to have you guys throwing a football around, but everybody's always standing way too close. Be like if you and I were casually playing catch with a football right now on stage. And we I could, would totally do that, right? Yeah. I can see on your face how embarrassed you are throwing the football, because you're like the only person who has ever held a football before. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in San Francisco. I was a big 49er fan, and so I kind of introduced football to Tommy and he would kind of shot put it, and I kind of would teach him. And I was like, yeah, I was like, come on, Tommy, you live in San Francisco. You don't embarrass Joe Montana. And he's like, Joe Montana is 
So football was kind of new to him, and he fell in love with it, so he put it in every scene. Now, I, just, he, I just wish we threw it overhand than underhand. Uh, well, I noticed you're the only one who actually throws it the way you throw a football. Everybody else is just kind of weirdly, but very casually, because you're just bros broing yeah, it up, right. you know. Um, how did he get $6 million to make this movie? Because he financed it with his own money, right? That's a great mystery. Um, in all of your knowing him, and I mean, you were pretty close friends with him. Yeah, I think he was a very successful retail man in the 80s and 90s in San Francisco. Um, from there, it's kind of a mystery. He has a lot of real estate, and he works 24-7, so he's, you know, accumulated a lot, but it just, it's kind of foggy the deeper you go. When did you first get a sense that this movie was actually going to become weirdly a hit? Um, well, I didn't think anybody would ever see it, obviously. Right, because he rented a theater in Los Angeles and ran it in Los Angeles for two weeks so that it would be eligible for an Academy Award, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was the stated goal to win an Academy Award for it. And he's still trying to do that. Uh, I think it's, I showed it to my family. I showed the dailies and the outtakes. You know, my family's like, what the hell have you been up to the last few months? I was like, all right, let me, let me show you. And they laughed so hard they cried. I mean, they, they couldn't believe how hilarious it was, but I didn't think anybody would ever see it. At the premiere, people stormed out. They were just, they said, I haven't seen shit like that in years. One person said, I'll never get hard again. And I, I definitely agree with the second one. But uh, there was these three film students that discovered it in the valley, like shortly before it disappeared, because uh, the review said, you know, no refunds, and watching this film was like getting stabbed in the head. And they're like, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta see this. So they 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 watched it and they couldn't believe it. They started calling all their friends, and an LA cult was born. And then around 2008, 2009, Entertainment Weekly did a big feature on it, saying that it had like a lot of celebrity fans. It was being studied in universities. Which blew my mind. It is University of Phoenix, to be <laughs> clear. Yeah, I, I don't want to go to those universities. And Has the movie recouped that money, you think, for him? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, because he, he spent a lot. I mean, there was a billboard up for five years in Hollywood for this movie. And with then his face, with Tommy Wiseau's face, which is so upsetting. Yeah. People would drive by it and they'd be like, what the heck is that thing? So, and then a lot of merchandise, you know, he was having t-shirts and everything made for a movie that nobody was even watching. So there's a lot of stuff that's gone into it, I think, to, to recoup it. But I think it's, it's doing pretty well. It's showing internationally, so. Last question, if you had the choice to somehow go back and be in this movie, which is, it, it's, it's amazing. level of failure is just almost unfathomable. Or you could have just been cast in kind of a run-of-the-mill movie from that era that wasn't particularly terrible, but just kind of was a normal movie. Which would you choose? I think we all kind of start out trying to make or be in a movie like Inception. <laughs> That's the, the goal. Uh, but I think it's, you either want to be amazing or you either want to be terrible. Not really in the middle. So I think this movie has been so entertaining for so many people that I think it's, I'd rather be in something like this that people enjoy than just something that's average. 
Well, Greg Sestero, the book is really a wonderful read. It's called The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room. If you get a chance, people, I highly recommend you check this movie out. Greg Sestero, thanks for being on Livewire. Thank you. Based on the novel by E.M. Forster, adapted for the screen and directed by Tommy Wiseau, she was on a journey to find herself. This isn't the room I reserved online. I thought there would be a view or something. What she found was something more. You are so beautiful. I have plans, and I will share them with you if you'd like to take a walk in the field. <laughs> I shouldn't. Probably. Don't be stuck up. I'll treat you like a princess. What the heck is going on, Lucy? Who is this guy? I'm George, and my last name is Emerson. But you can call me George. Whatever, I'm Cecil, and this is my future wife. I'm Lucy Honeychurch. Oh, hi, Miss Honeychurch. Tommy Wiseau is George Emerson. Tara Reed is Lucy Honeychurch, and Greg Sestero is Cecil Weiss in Tommy Wiseau's The Room with a View. Deal with it, George. Miss Honeychurch is with me now. I don't like you anymore. Miss Honeychurch, why do you betray me? Everyone betray me. Look, George, I love Cecil. You're tearing me apart, Miss Honeychurch! Tommy Wiseau's The Room with a View. Coming next spring. Rated R. That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, Jennifer Rowe, and Greg Sestero. The Livewire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, a company committed to healthy furniture and healthy communities. On the furniture end of things, they've got an entire line of sit, stand, desks, and ergonomically designed chairs to keep your spine from feeling like an unattractively shaped pretzel. And on the community side, they'll match any charitable donation to Livewire or any nonprofit for 30 days after the purchase of said chair or desk. That's what's known as putting your money where your healthy spine is, or whatever they say. Find out more information at ergodepot.com. We'll be right back.
All right, it's time for a little segment where we answer your important questions and some that are maybe not so much with the importance. We call it Dear Livewire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We should totally hook up Dear Livewire. All right, here's how this works. We get questions from you, the live audience. We also get some via Twitter and occasionally from that guy in the next cubicle who smells like mothballs and Slim Jims. But we just throw his questions away because they're really weird. Then what we do is we call on some experts to help us answer these questions. And we've got a question from listener Karen. She asks, I've been thinking of taking on a nickname. Is this something I can do for myself? Or is this something other people have to do for you? Follow-up question, if I can do it myself, what do you think of Care Care? <laughs> to answer this one, we decided to turn to somebody whose name has become very, very well-known throughout the public radio landscape. It's NPR newscaster Lakshmi Singh, who is on the line right now. Hey, Lakshmi. <laughs> Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm great. First off, what do you think? Can Karen give herself a nickname? Yeah, heck yeah, she can, of course. What do you think of Care Care? No, think on it. <laughs> just, just take a little time. Okay. She'll come to it. Do you have any nicknames? Yeah. Uh, in the newsroom, they, uh, when, they, when they feel a certain way about me, then they start calling me Shmee. Is Shmee good or bad? <laughs> it depends on who says it. So uh, if we had an editor who pretty much was uh, fed up with something I was saying, then uh, she would resort to Shmi, and I knew to shut up. And, uh, but if, you know, there was a, a, another, um, I guess, a fellow newscaster who was really happy to see me, then he'd go, Shmi! <laughs> so I just knew, you know, depending on uh, who was saying it and what time of day. Was that Carl Castle? Are. <laughs> no, no, he's a total gentleman, absolute total gentleman, taught me the tango. Oh, really? I didn't know. That guy, is, is, he's amazing. How, how has it been for you, Lakshmi, to have, because your name is so widely recognized now, to kind of have your name be basically the go-to joke that people use if they want to make a public radio joke? <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose uh, I, I, you know, was wondering about it for about a minute, but uh, it, afterwards it... Uh, it was pretty cool. I was pretty happy about that. It just uh, just meant that uh, somebody actually, you know, remembered the name and it stuck. And for whatever reason, it was out there. So there you go. I have no problems with it. Who's the most like? What's the most flattered you've been by somebody essentially making fun of your name? Um, I don't know if anybody actually made fun. Not of made my fun, name. but used your name as part of a joke. Like, have you been on The um, Simpsons or anything cool like that? <laughs> no, but I heard uh, I, I heard uh, that uh, my name was uh, used to, I guess, as a name of a lacrosse team. <laughs> they named the lacrosse name team the Lakshmi Sings? Uh, exactly. That's what that I team heard. is not going to win a game. <laughs> <laughs> or match, or whatever they I, call I, it. I, 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 hey, look, I think it's a shoo-in. I think, you know, already strength. There you go. All right, so just to summarize here, you say Karen can nickname herself, but maybe a waiting period on if she goes with Care Care or not. Yeah, totally. Just, uh, you know, sleep on it. All right. It'll come to work. Thank you, Lakshmi. <laughs> no problem. That is Lakshmi Singh from NPR News, and that is 
That's Dear Livewire right there, which was brought to you, as always, by New Belgium Brewing. New Belgium is proud to present Accumulation, a white IPA perfectly timed for the season when thermostats start going up and scarves stop being worn ironically. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. All right, folks, please welcome back to our stage, Twin Forks. That's our show. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Our thanks to our guests, William Todd Schultz, Greg Sestero, Suzanne Tufan, Twin Forks, and Lakshmi Singh. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, 
the Oregon Arts Commission, and National Endowment for the Arts. Plus, listeners like you find beautiful people. Speaking of things that are fine and beautiful, hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe, the best hotel in the world, if you ask me. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy group is Sean McGrath, Jennifer Rowe, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hameister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and me. Guest writers this show are Alex Falcone and Paul Glazier. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our engineer is Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Big special thanks also to Revival Drum Shop. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and Make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.